Welcome back to Young to Live By, my friends. Now, today's podcast is potentially one of the more important ones that we've done so far, especially if you're interested in the more clinical side of things. And that's because we go over the biopsychosocial model and exactly what it means. Now, of course, when you get into depth psychology, chances are you get into it through Carl Jung the man and Carl Jung the works. But Carl Jung died in the early 1960s. And so since then, things have been added, things have changed, we've learned new things. And so essentially what you can describe is this biopsychosocial model, as described by Stephen Pauline, is this theory of everything par excellence for the psyche and for biology. And basically all it's saying is that you have a biological side to a human being, you've got a psyche side to a human being, and you've also got a social side to a human being. And we're a system, basically. We don't just reduce things down to, you know, say, the hand or just one part of the brain. Indeed, you have to take into account everything, because we exist in homeostasis with ourselves, with our psyche, and with the social world around us. Now, we also go over the history of Stephen Pauline's clinical career, or at least a part of it, because what they did in the early 90s is that they demonstrated, very, very similar to how Carl Jung the man actually demonstrated way back 100 years ago, that complexes do actually clinically exist. And they did this through clinical capnography, where basically they would take a patient who was suffering with something, and they would assess the levels of CO2 in their breath. And this is a reflection, more or less, of the blood pH. And when you change up your blood pH into something called alkalosis, which usually comes about through hyperventilation if you're in a state of exhaustion, then what can happen is complexes can become activated. It's basically a prime state for these things to come out and start playing with you. And indeed, as we discuss in the podcast, start to breathe you. So probably something important to consider, especially as we're in a world where most people are chronically exhausted and without knowing it because they've been like it basically their entire lives. We're also using this video as an opportunity to officially announce something we're very excited about and this is the Charing Cross Method and it's a guide that you can pick up if you click the link in the description down below. Now it's based on the work that Steve and Pauline were doing clinically on frontline NHS healthcare to take people who are exhausted and burnt out and fatigued and made them not exhausted and burned out or fatigued anymore. And they've done this to hundreds, two thousands of people. The number is kind of lost. And the, um, the success rate is exceptionally high. We can't say 100% because that would be dishonest, but the success rate is exceptionally high. And it makes sense in terms of this biopsychosocial model because, as we say, we're in homeostasis with everything. And we can't just tackle things at the level of the psyche. We also have to take care of our own bodies every so often as well. As much as it's very difficult to do so in the modern world with our endless stimulation and our endless work and our endless drives and all these kind of things. So what I'd advise people to do is if you suspect that you've been working a lot or if you're having trouble sleeping or if you tend to sleep in or if you're relying on willpower, standard things based in drive and working hard, then check out the page. Just click through onto the link, check out the page. I put a list of symptoms on there deliberately, which are clinical signs of hyperventilation, which is something we're going to explicate properly in this podcast. And indeed, I was in this particular state, as I discuss in the podcast, and Steve and Pauline kind of synchronously were working on this kind of stuff they came to me and using the stuff in this guide I was able to bring myself out of exhaustion it is not a nice state to be in so if you suspect that you're in that state I'd highly recommend that you go and check that out but apart from that I hope you enjoyed today's podcast it's a hodgepodge of many different things but it's an important piece of the young to live by canon so with that let's go he, he sat on uh, one chap's uh, bed and held his hand and listened to his story Consultants don't do that. They just don't. 
and he, and he leaned forward and he, he, he quietly said, you've had your wife's heart attack for her because you loved her, you've had her heart attack. Don't worry, you're going to live. I went, wow, yeah, wow. Moving. I have never heard anything like that from an NHS doctor in my life, period. Mm. And he had a whole team of people there. He wouldn't have physiotherapists. He had osteopaths instead because physiotherapists, for him, had the wrong ethos of approach. Mm. Um, for him, anyway, mm. uh, he, he thought that they were a little bit too militaristic and liked to drill people and rush them around. He wouldn't have that. He wanted osteopaths because osteopaths knew how to touch people in a healing way. He had dance and movement therapists. He, he had, he had counsellors, but, but not, not your standard counsellor. These were counsellors who were under the, the overall umbrella of the approach, which was humanistic and person-centred in the most fundamental medical way, rather than just simply psychoreductive way. He had a hypnotherapist there, which was very interesting to me to see how he worked. Uh, so dance and movement therapists as well. He would give people to eat what they wanted to eat. If they smoked, it'd say smoking is an anxiolytic. Mm. It reduces anxiety. Mm. Don't stop smoking. Hmm. Yes. Hugh James, isn't it? Yeah, don't stop yet. Let's mm. save your life first. Mm. Uh, you would have the light down in the wards and it'd be quiet. Everything was quiet. And he would also work with uh, patients' families. So he regarded the family as a system, which of course rings with Jung immediately. Um, and they let me use um, my own experience of, of hypnotherapy and even of Western healing, because Paul and I have been apprentices to a Western spiritual healer for five years. Uh, that's a story in and of itself. Um, and that also involved hypnotherapy too. They let me do it. Um, and I had some techniques that the, the, the hypnotherapy guy there didn't have. Uh, and they trusted me with rehabilitating um, uh, heart patients. It was, it was absolutely fabulous. It was so fabulous, I ended up sleeping in the hospital. I didn't, this was in mm. London, obviously, I lived up here. Mm. And I had um, a friend who, who lived down south. I could have stayed with, with his family before. I'm going to sleep here. <laughs> so I, I slept in the rehab uh, <laughs> um, ward, if you like, myself, um, to make sure I was there and I wouldn't miss anything. It was absolutely amazing. And uh, he, he got on really well with us, with Pauline and I. And uh, he was very much into education. He, he gave us mounds and mounds of scientific papers. He made all sorts of introductions. And he was very, very open to Jung. When we sent him um, Carl Jung's work on complexes, for example, <coughs> the psychophysiology of complexes, he said he was enthralled by it. He, he never knew that Jung did that kind of work. Uh, he'd always associated Jung with the, the archetypal stuff that he's well known for, again, boring, Jung, all the rest of it. But, but complexes, because they're psychophysiological systems and they can definitely affect your physical health, they can kill you, in other words. Working with them in the right way means you can also be healed. So he was really, really up for that. And he used this amazing technology, this capnograph, which is an infrared mass spectrometer, a clinical capnograph, which is normally used in intensive care. And basically what it does is measure entire carbon, that's as you breathe out, carbon dioxide, partial pressures in your air. And that's very, very close to the arterial value. The significance of it is that, that CO2 in the body 
in solution is carbonic acid. It's an acid. It's involved in the acid-base regulation of the body. And the further significance of that is that because it's in every fluid medium in the body, it affects everything. Uh, and when you change the pH of the body, you change all sorts of things that you might not believe. You, you affect the transmission of nerve impulses at synapses. So it's a neurotransmitter effector. Therefore, it affects the psychological uh, system, the, uh, the neurological at the level of the brain and the, and the peripheral nervous system, the autonomic nervous system is all affected. The endocrine, the whole hormone system, psychoneuroendocrine is affected. Psychoneuroimmune is affected. At the level of um, the body's smooth muscular tubing, smooth muscle, lungs, uh, blood vessels, yeah? the ventricles in your brain, your gut. Your gut as well. All, <laughs> all, all of those things are, are affected. Just about everything is mm. affected by changing the, uh, the CO2 regulation of the body. That means the people who are fatigued and stressed can breathe themselves into a state of exhaustion, which is so profound, they'll get coronary artery spasm and perhaps a fatal heart attack in the absence of any pathology in the coronary arteries or where... Uh, coronary artery pathology is present then the narrowing necessary to induce mm. myocardial infarction a heart attack is much smaller than it would be and it goes on and on and on uh, and then looking into the exhaustion and fatigue syndromes and then a whole set of other disciplines that i had no idea up to that point that it existed did we love we, we just we did mm. we didn't know did we no uh, absolutely not i mean oh. you, you've missed OT that by the way <laughs> yes I, I, i've missed out occupational therapists yeah, yeah. He, he, he liked occupational therapists. He did indeed. Uh, yeah. And Pauline was a senior occupational therapist in psychiatry, managing at the time. At the time, when, at the when, time yeah. Yeah. Um, we um, and she, and she, she was using Jungian methods uh, at that time in a psychiatric unit. Um, he liked occupational therapists because they weren't so, should we say, uh, intensely militaristic as uh, <laughs> physiotherapy friends. Yeah. And the physios could call the OTs uh, moldy physios because they wore green. Yeah. You know, that was the day that they quite a, it was quite a bit of rivalry and most members of the public <laughs> don't know what occupational therapists no. do but in, in broad terms they're rehabilitation therapists they do pretty much most things the physios would do that were mm. not specifically um located say for, for, on physical rehabilitation yeah but they'd, they'd make things like splints for arthritis that kind of thing mm. but they they really came into their own as um supported general rehabilitation therapists in psychiatry but uh at charing cross they had them in the cardiac rehab unit because they had a more of a holistic perspective and they were gentler uh, yeah. And it was really just an amazing experience. His, his ward rounds and the ward rounds of his, of his team, the registrars under him, were, were just amazing. But every now and again, you'd get a fresh batch of nurses in who, who had the traditional nursing training, and they just couldn't cope because they were being asked to be nice to people in a way that was unfamiliar to them. And I'll, I'll be honest, you know, uh, the NHS are wonderful and all the rest of it, but not always. And, and nurses are the sharp point of delivery. And I can remember in one ward round, and they said to him, you hate nurses. And he said, not at all. I've relied on them for my whole career. But what I want here are people, not nurses, people who just happen to be nurses and who are here yeah. for other people yeah. who are suffering and who are ill and who need 
help to restore their life. It's an important uh, so yeah, nursing is very, very important, but like with uh, psychotherapy, mm. you need the right personality and you need the right culture of delivery. And they had at Charing Cross a unique culture of delivery, the like of which I, I have never seen before or since. Mm. And we were so inspired, you know, um, Pauline, who'd made the initial contact uh, with, uh, with them down, they came down. Uh, we also went through ward rounds and, and training with him. And then uh, with their approval, we delivered this through Pauline in acute and chronic psychiatry in the NHS. And then both of us in primary health care. Was it the thing that initiated it actually mm. was uh, my own father had had a heart attack mm. at that time, the late 80s, wasn't it? And, uh, Excuse me for busting in. I didn't want to give him any credit because he was a horrible individual. <laughs> and, uh, not long after, he died. And we were all very pleased about that. <laughs> oh, I'll shut you down completely. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, yes, I mean, I have to agree with that, unfortunately. Um, and it was no surprise, really, that he had a heart attack, probably at the age that he did. He'd been in his, what, mid-50s? At that time, um, mid to late fifties, yeah, which, which is yeah. still relatively young mm. um, for someone to to have a major heart attack in that way, and that that was the prompt to get in touch with Peter Nixon and Charing Cross Hospital, yeah. wasn't it? Generally, yeah. and uh, to our great surprise, they they got back, and um, that kind of established the relationship, and uh, it went from there. But it was incredibly inspirational. Yeah, right? it's, uh, so so is, is it this guy? Just quickly. The, from the actual thing itself. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. But he, he, one of many people, wasn't he? He was one working. of many people. He he was, he was the, uh, the figurehead, but there were a, a whole team yeah. of very very enlightened doctors. Um, he was a particularly charismatic uh, individual, which was <clears throat> uh, was absolutely wonderful because he inspired everyone, and he wanted to bring the best out in everyone and make them mm. as effective as possible. Mm. He believed, for example, in what he called a horizontal hierarchy, which you just don't get in medicine. No. Uh, and believe it or not, at the time, when I, I was still um, 30, 31, 32, uh, I had the, the idea that I might like to go into medicine, you know, following Joe Wheelwright and, and end up mm. in a psychiatric, literally, uh, career. Um, and I was arranging my own professional development so that, that that would be facilitated. And he said to me, don't do it because medicine would ruin you. Yes, he did say that. Um, mm. He said they are cathedrals to reductionism. So he was very much an outlier and his team were an outlier. And for as long as they collectively were in place, then this wonderful experiment in, in humanistic medicine was going to thrive. Mm. Obviously, when he went and the others went, as they did, then we would get that instinctive drift almost in a negative sense, yeah. back to the way that the NHS normally back treats people practice, with, a, yeah. with a vertical hierarchy mm. uh, and treating people in a purely biomedical way, which means you know the unique qualities of an individual uh, and seeing them as a multi-level system that has been injured at several levels simultaneously and all that needs to be adjusted, all that went. Um, and some of the team went out and, and, and carried on delivering it elsewhere, but, but it, that golden age never happened again as such, but we carried it over into primary healthcare mm. and we introduced it into psychotherapy training and we met a huge amount of resistance uh, from the people that I have called psycho-reductionists. 
some of that was for historical reasons because obviously the early analysts were all mm. medics and there was a power struggle then with the advent of behaviorism to move it away psychological therapy away from medicine and into the domain of psychology that meant that they lost all connection with medicine at all so a huge amount was lost in the meanwhile we had the rise of humanistic medicine and holistic medicine by which i mean scientific holism and not its opposite arse holism which sadly, <laughs> is, was sadly is very very prevalent uh, even now you know scientific medical holism is a serious thing and it is scientific so we, we brought the principles of scientific medical holism in which meant that this was holistic medical psychotherapy um, and we collaborated with Professor George Engel, the founder of the biopsychosocial model in the 1970s. And he was a Freudian psychoanalyst, which I didn't know. And you, you probably do know that the, the Freudian orthodoxy and the Jungian orthodoxy are irrevocably antithetical to one another. And particularly then, that there was still this, this, this hangover. It was rather like supporting different soccer teams. They were just, you know, that was it. Um, so we, we presented what we were, what we, we'd already done it actually, um, because we, we'd had the guidance of Charing Cross to, to develop it. And they supported us bringing Jung into the model overall. Uh, so we'd done it, but we approached him as if we sort of wanted to do it rather than we had. And uh, when we said we'd, we'd like to extend your little person box that you've got there in the middle of this, this stack of natural systems by saying that it's... Uh, you know, it's Jungian. He said, well, I'm, uh, I'm classically trained as a Freudian psychoanalyst, you know, so it was one of those faux pas moments. But, but he let that pass and um, he supported us so long as we just acknowledged where it came from, which is absolutely yes. fantastic. No problem. He was aware of, the, of what was going on in Charing Cross. So we, we introduced the, the capnograph into, into primary health care. Um, and that interested the doctors because people who were psychological therapists didn't normally do things like that. And we were pressure tested. Uh, we had everything and everyone thrown at us. I, I, I calculated to you yesterday that I would see upwards of 45 people a week across several sites, which I would. Mm. There'd be at least six NHS, uh, sorry, six private uh, referrals a day. And then there'd be an evening uh, session for the NHS and there'd be another five or six. So roughly 45 a week were coming in. And would, uh, would these be like uh, just? I'm just curious. Would these be like hour-long sessions or something? Would it? Would it be yeah, like you know, one after the other after they the other? They would be meant to be. They would, but they would flow over. Sometimes. They would flow over, yeah. and sometimes if we had to share a room, <laughs> half an hour afterwards, <laughs> I would be banging on the door, and this lady here with, with her extroverted feeling yeah. and introverted dancing wouldn't come out. You know? And so <laughs> I had all that stress to build up for people who were following on. And of course, that just pushed us along. Yeah. Uh, at the time, we, we, we didn't have children, so it didn't really matter if we didn't come home you know, uh, <laughs> or eat or anything normal. Well, like it that. takes as long as um, it takes. It, 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 it does. It does take as long it as it takes. It doesn't always take the 50-minute hours. No, no. I never did. I was in 60. 50-minute hours. Are the, to but, be but, precise. But Pauline's more like 120 minutes <laughs> an hour, you know, if, if it's her. I'm better than I was, James. I am, truly. That's because she gets tired now that she's older. <laughs> but when she was younger and had more stamina... How indiscreet of you. Then it finished when it finished. And, and that was often at my expense. 
Um, but anyway, uh, we had everything thrown at us because what happens in, in a situation like that is as soon as you prove to be useful yeah. and start saving money. Yeah, uh, particularly then, the latter. Particularly yeah. the latter. But often the two equate to the same yeah. thing. Usefulness and saving money yeah. in the NHS is, is pretty much the same thing. They, they would throw everything at us, every complicated case that they couldn't solve, uh, anything and everything that the CBT therapists, uh, you know, and the psychiatric social workers and the counsellors and that, who could get nowhere with were thrown to us. So when we dealt with them, then they started to say, well, why do we need the CBT therapists? Why do we need the humanistic rejuring counsellors? Why do we need any of them? Because these guys just deal with anything and everything. And after a while, we started to get medics themselves coming in as patients. Uh, we even had psychiatrists, clinical psychologists, and others mm. as patients because these guys are under tremendous pressures that they're, they're human like anyone else. Mm. And when they fracture, they fracture like anyone else at multiple levels. So you have an organic representation of a disorder or distress. You have a psychological representation and you have a psychosocial representation. And we had an organizing framework and model that could deal with all of that simultaneously and start to make changes, say, at the psychosocial level, which would affect their physiology or at the physiological level that would affect their psychology and therefore their sociology and so on. So proving yourself to be very, very efficient and effective is a good thing. And the practice growed so well that we were able then to start to bring in trainees uh, and start to train them in our own methods and give them experience in the front line in the NHS as part of their training with complicated cases. Uh, that, that was very effective. By 1993, we had uh, the results of over 500 NHS patients who had been on the catnograph for very, very complicated, interactive um, mind body, psychobiological, psychophysiological uh, conditions. And the Charing Cross team, who were connected to the uh, International Society for the Advancement of Respiratory Psychophysiology, ISARP, suggested that we present a paper on these results at the 12th International Symposium on Respiratory Psychophysiology at the Wellcome Centre in London, and that was September of 1993. Now, there were people there who had a psychological background that had worked at Charing Cross uh, and had used their protocols but they were cognitive and behavioural psychologists. And despite the fact that they were using a capnograph, they literally were so psycho-reductive that the two le levels of, of systems uh, were separate. There was no interaction at all. If they'd have had a Jungian background, specifically in complex therapy and theory, then it would have been completely clear to them what was going on. But they hadn't made that leap whereas we had uh, and uh, we were making that direct connection and we were able to demonstrate something that no one else had reported before which was the addition to Carl Jung's original investigation into the psychophysiology of complexes whereby for example he measured respiration using a pneumograph which measures chest wall movement uh, galvanized skin response, the electrical conductivity of the skin, changes in blood pressure, etc. In response to the Young-Ricklin, that's Carl Young and Franz Ricklin, word association test. 
and he was able to identify the, 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 the were clusters of associations that identified thoughts and, and emotions with a common mm. emotional charge. Mm. We extended that because we were able to use the capnograph to actually identify real time the activation, the switching on, and then the switching off in real time of psychodynamic, Freudian, if you like, defense mechanisms such as repression. Uh, and this was done by running the protocol. It's in the guide, by the way, and you can actually see um, printouts of two case studies which really clearly show this, where these things activate. Um, so you would, you would get the, a change at a molecular level in the blood of the carbon dioxide partial pressure where the normal pr protocol would suggest that it would fall because you're asking someone to think about something stressful or very, very traumatic in their life. But what we saw was a rise and we recorded the rise. This is supposedly impossible, even with biofeedback. And I can say that unless you're very, very experienced and very, very disciplined and you're in really good health, you don't stand much chance of trying to alter the partial pressure of your carbon dioxide, even with the machine in front of you. Yeah, you and you can say it, 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 it's extremely difficult. But there was something in there and it was correlated, some process dynamic, with when a person reported that they couldn't think of something when asked to mm. think of it. You know, or if they did, it appeared in a different form, in a form that was no longer stressful. Then when you release them from that suggestion that they should think about it, then you saw the fall that should have been there. So what you're seeing is an unconscious physiological response, as unconscious, if not more so, even a galvanized skin response that modulates the production and regulation and distribution, if you like, of carbon dioxide through the entire body's fluid mediums in response to a challenge that suggests that they should think about something which is harmful or distressing to them. It goes up. Mm. It shouldn't. So this was incredible. This was, this was seeing, like seeing a ghost. It was like getting you know, a message through SETI from some alien civilization. You, you were seeing something that no one else had seen before. Now, capnographs are expensive. They cost a lot of money. We had to remortgage our house to get one. Was it about eight grand at that time? It's about eight it's grand, you know, you talk, talk about the late 1980s, yes. you know, that was a fair bit, yeah. It was a fair bit of money. Yeah. And, and also, you, you do need to be trained in them. You do need supervision, medical supervision, because all sorts of things can go wrong if you're not careful. Um, we had all of that in place. We had the proper training. But we had a psychological model to explain what was going on. We took proper case histories. Everything was right for that. But once you identify those dynamics, then you can go in after them, if you like. And I say after them in, in an enthusiastic sense, not in a literal sense, because you do need the enthusiasm to solve a problem, don't mm, you? When you, you, when, do. you when you meet this in, in, in a patient, there's absolutely no point sitting back asking somebody, how does it feel to be dead? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which, which is like your typical counselling response. Yeah, how does it feel? Yeah. Yeah. You know? mm. You know how they feel because they're, they're, they're presenting in a state of absolute exhaustion, fatigue, with high blood pressure, terrible anxiety, depression, yeah. whatever it is, you don't need to ask them how they feel. Yeah. They've already been referred to, you know, through a medical system, feeling mm. shit. Mm. So you have to find out why that's the case uh, and what is being protected and how you can get into that. So when you use techniques like hypnosis with the capnograph, 
you can start to safely dissociate someone from negative feelings and get behind the uh, the repressions or suppressions or whatever the particular psychodynamic is that you're experiencing. But in the handout, anyway, for uh, the Charon Cross handout, uh, which um, the downloadable manual, which is basically on uh, burnout prevention and recovery, because a lot of that is connected with this, you will see the protocols used at Charon Cross Hospital. Our psychodynamic modification of that, you'll see chart strip recorders and case history, so you can see how it works psychologically. Um, it was groundbreaking stuff over 30 years ago, and it still is now. Uh, ISAR still exists, International Society for the Advancement of Respiratory Psychophysiology. <laughs> so, you know, people can join that, although they tend to, to want you to have some clinical experience in the field. So, in that sense, we are psychophysiologists, we're published psychophysiologists, and later we encountered the work of Ernest Rossi, which gave us another level of intervention that we hadn't had before. Uh, this is, yeah, 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 absolutely. No, I'm, I'm really thinking about Rossi, to be honest with you. Um, I, I was hmm. kind of thinking more basically even about things like acid-base balances and so oh, on. Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously the biology comes into it hmm. and you, you'll just, you'll not get that with counselling no or any other no. psychological therapy. No. And yet it's an absolute must. You, you hmm. can't really put somebody on the catnograph hmm. without knowing about those kinds of things no. because again you don't know what you're doing no. okay you're looking you, you you're chasing complexes and you're looking for for uh, psychological repression and so on yep. but you absolutely must have a proper understanding of biology and in particular the acid base system uh, and the ph regulations of blood and so on you really yep. do have to know your stuff you do because you're not doing that in isolation no this, this, thanks paul this, this, this is a paper which is called psychological stress and silent myocardial ischemia. In other words, a heart attack through psychological stress. I'll just hold it up so you can hopefully, mm. can you see that James? Yeah. This is the uh, known in our field as uh, death by abreaction. And it's not the only paper that's covered it. Yeah. In 1988, Norman Kaplan, who was one of the leading lights of the American Cardiac Association, uh, published a paper, two papers in fact, on the dangers of psychological therapists extracting oh, yes. um, emotional confessions from patients. Yeah. And uh, they showed us a, a, a char and cross as a warning. Mm. And uh, we took it on board. Mm. And I have mentioned this, I think, before in, in another mm. podcast. But when we were working at, um, in Cheshire, the Cheshire part of Wirral, Neston Medical Centre, yes. uh, there was a very enthusiastic nurse there who would routinely put um, patients on uh, an electrocardiogram just to check out how they were doing after they'd had uh, heart trouble. And we were discussing with her, weren't we, in we the were, morning? Yeah. Um, about this particular thing, and uh, we said, you know, her name was uh, Maggie. Said, Maggie, please, uh, Margie, uh, please don't do this. You know, uh, don't talk to this particular patient about the loss of his wife, because you know. Um, she said, "Oh no, 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 no problem." Anyway, she uh, she put him on it, and sure enough, uh, the uh, the astrocardiogram showed he was having a silent heart attack yeah. because 
she'd asked him to think about the loss of his wife yeah. just in a general conversation as mm. nurses or anyone would do mm. that was sufficient it could have killed it him it could have killed him because he was elderly wasn't he it? was elderly yeah. and he had a weak heart mm. and uh, the thing that norman kaplan said which was, was really informative is that these things add up mm. you know uh, and there is always this 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 idea particularly with counselors you know I'm sorry, uh, <laughs> counsellors is one of those red flag words for me, you know, um, for getting people to have a little cry, you oh. know, and relieve some emotion. Because that's about all they can do. Yeah. When, you know, you just can't do that. You don't know, for example, what state someone's in. And as Norma Kaplan said, they mm. might drop dead later and you yeah. kill them and you don't know you've done it. Yeah. You have to be really, really careful about what you do. So I yeah. think that was a the, yes, sorry, yeah. Paul. No, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right there. I mean, the, although obviously um, Peter Nixon and others didn't go really as far as we did with no. respect to um, the psychological side of things and building in the Jungian approach, nonetheless, they would still have said that, say, for example, in somebody who is just chronically fatigued, is absolutely uh, and utterly exhausted, that the um a person's breathing in response to that becomes becomes uncoupled from their physiological needs um and attached to their emotions mm. so even even he and, and his team would go that far yeah. in showing the connection between the two but if we're talking about the likes of counseling yeah um and even things like cbt and so mm. on you just you don't get that depth of understanding no, you don't. Uh, and, and just how dynamic these things are and the yeah. interplay between the, the different levels and yeah. so on yeah so it's incredibly important mm. to deal with the body and, and to understand the science behind it otherwise you know again mm. i've said this before what are you doing yeah. to someone do you do you understand what you might be doing to mm. them and how you might be putting them at you know at physical risk yeah. Well, one of the things I'm fascinated with is the idea of uh, symbolic conversions and transductions and stuff like that. So when you're talking about that elderly gentleman who was having a silent yeah. heart attack, yeah. especially in the context of his deceased wife, it's like immediately the image yes. of broken heart came to mind. Do you reckon there yes. could be some kind mm -hmm. of connection there? Like you reminded him of when exactly. his heart was broken, therefore his heart yeah. broke again in the moment. Yes. Yes, with, without a doubt. And I mean, people talk about the heart as being the seat of the emotions, for example it's a common metaphor isn't it that they choose and i think that's absolutely right but the, the the beauty of this model really is that it will it can demonstrate how that actually happens what the pathways are that would allow that to happen and how you might be an agent yourself for making that happen so there's a huge amount of responsibility yeah. comes with any psychological mm. therapy mm. really and, and if you don't have a complete enough model to understand what's going on then you will miss those things i mean of the people who do that who induce that kind of a reaction I, I guess you can say they don't really know or understand that they're doing that kind of harm but does you know does that really excuse it it's a difficult moral question, that, isn't it? I don't think it does. No, I don't personally. I, 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 I would I, say I, not. I don't think it does. No, because the person comes to see you, the patient who comes to see you expects you to know what you're doing. Mm. Yeah. Well, I've uh, obviously, when I met you two, it must have been 
month ago, six weeks ago, yeah. you, you put me on one of your Cat McGrath things. It's very, it's like immediately, oh, like, yes. like rapid and super, super, super simple. I was there, I can put a picture up, up on the screen. I had this thing that went in my nose, just breathe normally. Yes. And then you can see yes. the partial pressure of, of uh, carbon dioxide yes. that's in your breath, which of course, as you said, still yes. matches in your blood. And then you said, think of something stressful and immediately the machine started like bleeping. as Cause there was yeah, like a drop. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's that's a, an intensive therapy unit alarm level that's mm -hmm. going off. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at that point, mm -hmm. your CO2 levels were at the level that if you had, you know, had a medical emergency, it would have been singing its nuts off, frankly. Yes, and yes. You're, you're walking around in that state where your yeah. your psyche can put you in that condition. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that can happen, and I'm not saying this to frighten you or anyone, you know, mm. uh, well, Satisfied by the way that you're all right because yes, we've we've, we've done it obviously. Yeah, yeah. I'm just so, using it. It's like you know, um, people. Well, this, this is my thing, and I explained it in my uh, how young yeah. Sabi from Dante's Hell video. It's like grind, yeah. be a man. You know, push yourself to the mm. limit. And it's like but then yeah. as soon as you go on the machine yeah. and it starts bleeping, it's like maybe you no, shouldn't do that yeah. ever. No, and, and then a young person as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes. You see, people, are, and and just this is following on from the qualifying statement I made just before, people can get cardiac arrhythmias yeah. through CO2 and acid-based dysregulation. Yes. You can be killed, not you, but someone yeah. could be killed that way if, if they're in the right overall state with respect to their system's profile. Yeah. That can be the psychosocial pressure, it can be the physiological state of exhaustion. Uh, and then you just add a little bit more to that and it's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yes. That probably happened with my dad. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I mean, there say. probably were, you know, the pro probably were physiological changes for him at his age. But I think his overall emotional state mm. and the psychological pressures that he was under just took him over the edge. Yeah. And it's such a common pattern, isn't it? Yeah, you could say that it was uh, entropy psychologically, yes. but also physiologically. Yes. Remember, we are both. We're not one or the other. It just depends which way you tilt the coin from the head or the tail to look at it. But we are a complete interacting system. Uh, and he was in an entropic state with, with uh, catabolism. He was breaking himself down. Uh, and that's, uh, that's, that's dangerous. It only needs a small variable then to be altered to put someone in, into that, that uh, terminal state. Uh, and again, it, if you work in the front line, but not as a psychoreductive a psychological therapist whereas a psychophysiologist who also is trained and does work psychosocially i.e the biopsychosocial model with a Jungian core uh, you you'll be working with these cases now the, the problem is psychological orientated therapists psychoreductive therapists meet the same people we do they do yeah and their approach is uh, at best disjointed or abstracted they usually come to us after them, actually. Yes, yeah, we, we used to get the failures. And you end up mopping up. We, exactly. Even from psychiatrists, we, we would be, we'd get referrals because it was too complicated and the revolving door approach wouldn't work. We were sent all the ones, the most difficult, mm. like, you know, send them to them, they'll do something, yeah. and we did. And, and that's where we, we got our reputation from, being able to do that. And for us, then, that represents the real world. It doesn't represent some mystical archetypal fantasy about what people are. It's the truth of it. Mm. Now, of course, you can use an archetypal model when it's appropriate 
to help somebody mm. and we would do that mm. as we were discussing the other day with creative therapies you can mm. bring all of this stuff out but you can also tackle the transduction of say a psychosocial pressure through psychology and into the body you can bring that back out yeah. by starting that process yes. with a creative therapy mm. and the creative therapy begins to lift it it's all about the language that it's now written in because you see repression can psychological repression is understood by freud and others can go so deep it's no longer written in the language of psychology it disappears into the materiality of your metabolism it's gone you can't reach it directly anymore through the superficialities of cognitive therapy and telling somebody to think differently it doesn't work you're working at the level of the ego all the time uh, and there's nothing there and you can't get it out of people by being nice to them like a counselor would be and you can't have this philosophy that people are the best experts on themselves well if they were they wouldn't need help no you know so sorry but this is the kind of crap you get in the psychological therapies all the time and one of the reinforcements for that is that a lot of these these so-called therapists are just there to have a voyeuristic mm. conversation that they get off on and feel good because somebody's sharing their emotions and their shit life with this therapist who's very very comfortable mm. and smiles at them inanely mm. and then you know mm. nothing happens yeah. but they've had their counseling yeah. they've had their cbt so who's it benefiting so yeah who's yeah. it benefiting but for us the idea of helping people to solve problems and to relieve suffering was the mm. primary motivation mm. and that's what we engaged with and you can't do that authentically if you don't see people and human nature for what it really is it's not just psychology but sorry sorry, sorry, just just before we kind of move into other things put a note in about about smoking really because i was reminded at the very beginning of this when when you were talking about james's comment the other day uh with respect to his gp you know when you came out yes yes yeah he told you that you would feel so much better and your anxiety would go down well yeah he he didn't do it in a nice way either he was just like oh you have anxiety quit smoking yes and then immediately I was like, yeah. absolutely not. No. Yes. It's just like, well, I mean, thank, it, thanks for I, your help. Yeah. And, and it's something that's commonly trotted out, isn't it? And if I go back, you know, all those decades to when um, my dad had, had his heart attack, he was a smoker. And even when he was in hospital, when he was uh, on a cardiac ward, he'd nip off into the, the toilet to have a smoke and he'd get caught by the nurses and scolded and all the rest of it mm. and sent back to his bed. But you're absolutely right. And, and Peter Nix and some of the other doctors at the time deliberately didn't do that. So yes, you mentioned mm. about him, him, him specifically saying to people, don't worry about smoking right yeah. now. It's, it's the kind of the least of your worries. Yeah. And, you know, it is a very effective anxiolytic. So you've got you've got to be very careful about at what point you 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 know you try and ask somebody to give up smoking, mm. um, and a similar sort of thing with with my mum because my mum died of a heart attack as well, uh, and she was relatively young. She was older than my dad, but she was still relatively young, and um, she'd been on a minor tranquilizer for most of her life, and it was anything like two milligrams of, of Valium. It was a very very low dose, but if you read any decent cardiology textbook they will tell you that that actually has a protective effect on the heart in low doses and she'd been under pressure from her own gp for a very long time because he was probably just to be honest with you sick to death of her 
turning up and asking for it all the time, um, that she took it upon herself to come off it. And she didn't tell anyone, she didn't even tell her family that she'd done it. I only found out, you know, sort of further down the line that that had happened. And she then went on to have a, you know, um, a massive uh, myocardial infarction or heart attack and died from it. And you can't help but think, had the advice been different or she hadn't been pushed into feeling she had to give it up, that she'd probably even still be here now. Yeah. So this is where these things can, again, in isolation, can be incredibly dangerous, mm. even though it's your GP telling you you should do something. It has to be in the overall context of, uh, of that person. Uh, life and state of health psychologically and, and, and socio-environmentally and so mm. on it can never just be abstracted out and taken in isolation mm. so you know, sadly both my mum and my dad were kind of casualties of, of that were. kind of reductive yeah. thinking unfortunately reductive thinking in the face of psychosocial yes. stresses yes that, that they were the medical um, establishment were part of the stress that was on them uh, then they had their own limitations psychologically, so they couldn't understand what was happening to no, them. No, that's true. Uh, and then they had the disordered physiology, yes, which over decades had eroded their capacity to withstand pressure and had become an organic issue with mm. respect to the heart. Mm. You add those three up, that's being, in Pauline's mother's case, being mm. contained by a mere two milligrams of benzodiazepine, yes. a healthy dose. Yes. Remove that. There's a straw. Yeah, and it just took her out. It took her out because the the and when she had the heart the the, the, the heart attack, the uh, some of the support that she got from other members of the family mm. was actually toxic and destructive. Mm. Uh, so we, we had a, a a layer of bad psychosocial social factors impinging on that, which yeah. drove it further down. Yeah. And, and this is, this is if you're going to be truly holistic in a scientific way, you have to understand these things. And it's absolutely pointless just being a psychological therapist mm. when you're dealing with the wholeness of the human condition. Mm. That is not to say you're not a psychotherapist. You're a psychotherapist who is trained in psychophysiology. And that means that you are in a tradition that goes back to Jung. Jung was a medic. Yes, he, he was, was a physician. Mm. And he understood that. Uh, and, and so they all did at that time mm -hmm. at the Holsley when he was doing his pioneering work. Well, Freud was a neurologist. Freud was and a would neurologist. Have had medical knowledge Absolutely. and understanding. Yeah. Absolutely. And on the subject of hyperventilation, there, there are a lot of, um, a lot of different breathing methods out there at the moment. I'm not oh, going to yes. comment by name on any of them because some of them are very, mm. very good. But there was a very fashionable one about 30 years ago that I remember well, which has disappeared off the radar. But that was, um, that was teaching people to breathe in a very, very dangerous way. Mm. And uh, we had to get them off that because they were killing themselves. And we would use the cat the graft. We had to prove to them mm. with something which we couldn't fiddle with, mm. uh, but would demonstrate clearly. Yes, it's not an objective measure. It was, it's an objective measure. You, you can't get away no. from it. And the scientific literature on this is vast, mm. absolutely vast. Mm. But most psychologists and psychotherapists have no access to it no understanding of it mm. but a lot of them in a well-meaning sense will say well breathe like this well what's the starting point yes yeah? and getting back to uh, neurology and freud and, and josef breuer one of the things that we found when we were full-on in primary healthcare right from the very beginning is that 
if you just opened your mind to what came in and saw them as complete people, all of a sudden, right in front of our face, mm. was exactly the kind of thing that turned up for Freud and Breuer in Vienna mm. in the 1880s and 1890s. Mm. It was there, exactly the same thing, because human nature doesn't change. So we got basically all of the hysterias as they would have understood them, which would have been called either uh, you know, psychosomatic or somatiform disorder mm. back in that day, although there are changes to classification now. And that included neurological issues, um, all the hysterical paralysis and, and, and stuff like that. But when you would put these people on the capnograph, you'd find that they were chronically hyperventilating. And I don't mean visibly over-breathing. No. Because hyperventilation is defined as breathing in excess of the body's physiological needs. That's it. Yeah. And if you do it for long enough as a habit then you get into a state that's called respiratory alkalosis. So you're blowing off too much carbon dioxide, you're losing acid, and you get into an alkaline state. And when that happens, you get this dis dis dysregulation. So we began treating these people like Freud and Breuer did, but with the capnograph. Yeah. So we were using hypnosis, as Freud and Breuer did, when they wrote studies on hysteria and we started to get people turning around. Mm. At that basic level, there was no need to bring Jung in because what was presenting was pure early Freud and Josef Breuer. So that's what we did and we got the results and we built up on that. And as more complicated cases came to us, diagnosed as being more complicated, then it was applicable to bring Jung's theory in with respect to complexes and so forth and it would build mm. on the basis of that. And we ended up using, of course, the full range of Jungian techniques, but not, not by losing the, the absolutely critical insights and capacity that we had as psychophysiologists yeah. to, to get a turnaround. And I'll just hold one paper for a minute. Yes, of course, look, yeah, yeah. I, I was I, just going to comment on the breathing, but I'll wait for you to I've, do I've that. I've been asked about this on mm. Discord, and mm. this is a paper from 1968 in the American Journal of Psychiatry. And... It's basically mm. hyperventilation leading to hallucination. Oh, yes, absolutely. Alan Agus, 1968, American Journal of Psychiatry. Mm. Groundbreaking paper, which has sure, been forgotten. And this hyperventilation, again, need not be obtrusive. This, th these are people mm. who were diagnosed basically with psychosis and were sectioned yeah. because they were overbreathers. And we, we experienced this. Yes. And we, were, we used to help people recover, get back out of the grips of the psychiatrists and of major tranquilizers because they'd simply been in a state of habitual overbreathing due to psychosocial stress. They then uh, had a complex about that, which then breathed them. Yes. Because they can. Yes. Even Jung recognised that. Yes. The complexes can have a physiology of their own, he said. Uh, and of course, what he meant by that is that they take over a, an element of your physiology. And then you can be compelled to overbreathe. So I'll just hold up yes, the paper for reference if anybody's interested. Gotcha. That one will also, uh, if you can find a link, we can also put that in the description as well for people to download yeah. and have a browse. Can we can we get the camera back on that? Yeah. yeah. So if anybody wants to pause it and take a screenshot, this was given to me at Charing Cross Hospital, mm. and I've kept it. Yeah, hopefully people can see that through the old resolution. Yeah, thank you. So, yeah, yeah. you, you got about, about transductions and other things? Well, at. no, I was, going, I was going to add something about the dangers of, um, I guess, again, I'm thinking of the likes of counsellors and, and, and people who um, 
aren't into science or aren't interested in biology and the body and so on, that if you um, ask somebody who is a chronic overbreather to relax their breathing yeah. in some way because you not only uh, i mean you go beyond the stage that mm. you described steve yeah. as respiratory alkalosis uh, and metabolic alkalosis where it's chronic you get something called respiratory center resetting in the brain and that person is then compelled to over breathe and so if you ask them then to relax their breathing through a breathing technique or you know you use relaxation or some other method then you can drive them into um respiratory acidosis and metabolic yeah. acidosis because they don't have the buffers yeah. to bring the, the the body's ph back to normal and that's very much associated with symptoms well, you can make somebody just feel really really unwell mm. by doing that uh, and they might become agitated um or get all sorts get all sorts of other physiological symptoms as a result of it um another example of it would be when people go to to sleep at night and obviously your breathing your ventilation is suppressed because you go into a more relaxed state in order to sleep that you wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning um because of this acidotic change in the body to actually uh, kicks off panic attacks and and so on and makes you um, wake up and start to hyperventilate in, in an attempt to bring the pH back to normal. So that's another way in which it can happen. Or if, um, say, you're out in everyday life and you're stuck in a supermarket queue, as people sadly are at the moment, but, you know, two metres apart, then something like that could kick it off, mm. where you're no longer walking around and... Um, you know physically uh if you're like using up um or, or or buffering the acid that's produced by effort anymore you're stuck in the queue and that's no longer happening then that can kick off a really bad reaction as well so anything that um you ask somebody to do or they find themselves doing um in their outer life and they're already in in that chronically fatigued state that it can be extremely dangerous yeah. So, you know, as therapists, we, we need to be mindful of that, yeah. really. Yeah. I want to ask you really quickly on the biology of how a yeah. complex, because when you said before that complexes can breathe you, for example, in part of all yes. of this, at what resolution of the body would the complex then be working? Would it be like the, the actual neurological system of the lungs or would it be within the brain or, would it, or could it be literally anywhere? So you've said that hyperventilation is like you're breathing beyond what your body actually needs. Does yeah. it have yeah. to be at the resolution of the lungs, if you see what I mean? Yeah. Yes, you can do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hyperventilation is just um, the route to respiratory alkalosis or, you know, as Paul says, yeah. uh, metabolic. metabolic. Yeah. Uh, that's not the issue, is not the breathing, because after a while, mm -hmm. you know, when you first start, say it's through an anxious encounter, you might hyperventilate. But then later, you're not hyperventilating visibly, but you're still over-breathing. Two or three months later, you're chronically over-breathing and it doesn't show because yeah. it's just very, very low in the chest, but it's still rapid. And at that point, this is where the complexes really take root physiologically. Mm -hmm. Because the CO2 acid base, the pH balance of the body, <clears throat> is a whole body state encoder. When you're in that state, things imprint and have a profile, which is psychophysiological. It's yes. also psychosocial as well. 
uh, the complex then being dynamic and having as Jung says himself a physiology of its own can literally take root and adopt a profile and remember that the, the the complex is not just psychological although Jung defined it initially as being ideas held together by a common emotional charge sometimes these complexes have no ideas that you can readily associate because they are so unconscious they're not there um, they have an emotional connection yes once you tickle them and stimulate them but other than that you don't feel perhaps the emotion what you are aware of are the physical symptoms and then when you go after the physical symptoms from a psychophysiological point of view you then find the emotions first and then you find the ideas afterwards mm. they're the most resistant part are the actual ideas but you have to get to the emotion then the problem is that the emotion is protected by the physical symptoms so if you go after the emotion and then you stimulate it it increases and it worsens the physical symptoms so you have no chance of getting near the ideas at that point it's literally crossed what Jung called the psychoid boundary yeah. so it's gone down from psychology into physiology mm. and it's rooted there but what you do get as with pretty much all so-called <clears throat> hysterias is that you get a very specific representation and this is how you know that you're dealing with a complex so somebody might get what is called in our field psychogenic asthma in other words the bronchioles are affected directly there's a smooth muscle spasm there and it's there rather than in the heart someone else will get it in the smooth muscular tubing of the gastrointestinal tract lower down and they may get irritable bowel syndrome and there's no obvious emotional or ideational connection to it it's just that when the hyperventilation has set in and created this whole uh, system uh, system of transduction it's formed that fracture line people fracture sometimes mm. like a plate along the rim not so serious a little bit further in getting more serious and the worst of it is when a plate fractures from rim to center because it can bear no more stress at that point and if you overload it the plate fractures and, and people can get like that but you see mm. the minor cracks and that might be that, that, that somebody has a little bit of difficulty breathing or a tight chest but they have an examination there's nothing wrong with them others though will get uh, a speech disorder they'll stutter yeah because the larynx is also it's part of the motor speech system uh, and the muscles around uh, your throat and all the rest of it other people have difficulty swallowing because it goes tight mm. smooth muscle again mm. there's no disease they've had an endoscopies there's nothing there yeah. nothing but they have it and uh, you, you know your psychiatrist will, will, will classify it but they don't know how to treat it because even psychiatrists are not psychophysiologists they're basically pharmacists mm, yeah. that's all they they're are just medics with some psychological knowledge aren't they? very very limited they're, they're into yeah. classification basically if psychiatry is anything it should be a branch of neuroendocrinology mm -hmm. but it's not because neuroendocrinology is a very 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 specialized uh, field that gets to a medical consultant level within that you need a lot of experience but that's because of the way that the biomedical profession trains people to understand psychoneuroendocrine pathways if you are of reasonable intelligence is not that difficult no, it's not, not that difficult at all and this is where Rossi would come in later but yeah people take a particular profile and when you work with them 
at different levels simultaneously, you start to see why they fracture in that way, why the symbolization of the physiological symptom has chosen that particular path. And this symbolization process was discovered by people like Charcot, Jean-Martin Charcot at the Salpetriere, one of the, the great hypnotists of the 19th century. He was also a physician and he was one of Freud's teachers and influencers and one of the discoverers of hysteria, as it was called then. But these, these people, these sufferers still turn up in that way. But because psychology has lost all of its, all of its connections to the body, it can't solve the problem. And so by default, it ends up with psychiatrists who are just clinical pharmacists. Yeah? Um, so it needs this kind of approach. And there are people out there who are doing it. Ernest Rossi is one of the greats, without a shadow of a doubt. Mm. Jungian analyst, one of the greatest hypnotherapists there is, and one of the finest um, researchers into the fields of psychoneuroendocrinology, psychoneuroimmunology, state-dependent memory learning and behavior, which is another way of saying a complex. Mm. Isn't it? It is, yeah. So I don't know if that's answered your question. I've yeah. tried to be as yeah. broad and as informative as I can. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it has, it has. I mean, people have reached out to me before, um, clearly, mm -hmm. clearly suffering, to be honest with you, uh, saying, like, you said before that you managed to cure your dissociation. You know, my, my head-based dissociation, like the world looks like it's in a bit of a dream. And it's like, yeah, mm. I did. And I've never really gone into properly publicly the actual process. The actual process is within the manual itself. Because I've, I've put mm. up on the actual page, you can go take take a look at the manual deliberately. We've got, um, uh, so there are a whole, whole bunch of symptoms, basically. So reliance on willpower to get you out of bed in the morning. Frequent fatigue. Dissociation. Breathing using the upper chest. So as you were saying, Steve, you're meant to breathe like your stomach going in and out. But like this instead, the shoulders go up and down. Panic attacks, chest pain, and numbness and tingling in the distal extremities. So, for example, tingling. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I had all of those. It wasn't just dissociation. So I, I, I have to be completely clear. So the, the, I had exactly what we are talking about and probably still do because it comes back every so often as I continue on with my psychological work. I have exactly what you were talking about. So it's a weird, yeah. I guess, a weird synchronicity that you guys actually worked on this and then you reached out to me with all this information. But the, the way that I've been sort of tackling it with you two has been, there's been the psychological level, but also there's the, it's, it's the Sabres approach, which is within the, the manual itself, to go from yeah. psychology and yeah. then also from biology at the same time. So if there's anybody yes. watching this who has those particular symptoms, and I know about three or four of you have reached out over Discord, actually, with, 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 with these things, it's like you'll probably have one of these state-dependent complexes and it is breathing you and it will be related to hyperventilation. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. It, it, I just yeah. Hope, hope that's useful to some people if it's going to help them, you yeah. know, um, stop suffering needlessly. Yes, I think for some people, though, James, um, the hyperventilation, like I, I think I was hinting before, will be so chronic and so ingrained that they might kind of a, a medical intervention, mm. um, again, such as a, a minor tranquilizer um, or even some over the counter meds will do just to help that person with the um the respiratory center resetting because unless you can you can break that too at a physiological level and, and get back to um a normal state a normal homeostasis then it's difficult too to deal with the psychological materials so sometimes that has to be put in place first absolutely it? absolutely 
you know, typically, like I said, if somebody's waking up at three or four o'clock in the morning yeah. uh, with chest pain and panic attacks and so on, then that's probably a strong indication yeah. that they need to have some kind of sleep regimen that will eventually lead, you know, back to their, you know, their, their physiological homeostasis. And then the, the complex side of things can be dealt with. Yeah, because if you're waking up at three and four in the morning, you're going to be interrupting your uh, deep sleep, your slow yeah. wave sleep. And yeah. obviously, obviously, one yeah. of the ways to, to recover from a chronic state of, of ex exhaustion yeah. is going to be through sleep. So, so yes. yeah, yeah, you, you'll need to. I see what you mean there in terms of having a little bit yeah. of intervention from the medical profession. There are, yeah. there are papers, scientific papers in the literature about this. The late professor of psychology, Ronald Lay, uh, published quite extensively on, on this very phenomenon. Mm. He was one of the founders of ISAR. Uh, and we knew him well, uh, and he was uh, basically the, the host for the day at the Welcome Centre in 1993. Yeah. But but he he wrote specifically on this from the point of view of a psychologist. But he was learning about physiology, and he considered himself to have morphed into a psychophysiologist. The problem was his psychology was very limited. It was the kind of psychology that you get out of uh, you know your usual academic institution, your usual university level. Uh, and that does hold people back in terms of their explanatory power. But nevertheless, this phenomenon is known about and it's in the literature. Yes. It's been published about and it is real. Mm. Panic attacks as well can be caused by unobtrusive hyperventilation, mm -hmm. chronic hyperventilation. Mm. Uh, you don't have to be panting no. at all. This is a misnomer. Yes, it is. Absolutely, it is. It's really just a new normal for yeah. that person, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, not a healthy adaptation, of course, but nonetheless, it, it's just a, a new normal. And um, it's important to, to re-establish a new pattern of breathing. But you might need some kind of medical assistance in order to do that, to, yeah. to allow that respiratory resetting to take place. Yeah, I mean, at Charing Cross, they, they would put people to sleep for a week mm. in a ward where all the beds were, were curtained off yes. and all the lights were down. Yes. Uh, and, and that was considered to be <clears throat> absolutely vital because mm. you would then begin to restore the physiological chassis upon yes. which psychology sits. Yes. If that's, I mean, if your body's shot, you're not going to be able to think. Just try it, you know? Yeah. It doesn't work. No. In everyday life, if um, you get tired, you can't think straight. You can't. No. So if you're exhausted, you definitely can't process things. No. Um, but what will happen is that malignant complexes will get in. Yes. Your, your psychological immune system will not be able to protect you. Your ego can get overwhelmed. It can mm. be invested mm -hmm. with all sorts of crap that then persists afterwards because mm. you've identified with it. Yeah. You know, it's, this is really, really important. It is because you guess um, if somebody is chronically exhausted, you tend to get a psychological abasement anyway. You, do, yeah. you don't have much psychological energy, so complexes can get a grip more easily. That say, if that person was in a, a, a properly rested state, wouldn't bother them at all. So sometimes the the, the content that comes up isn't necessarily even a problem to that person no. it's just that it happens to be triggered it's kicked off yeah and like like i say if they were properly rested uh and and um had proper ego strength they they, they could relate they could resist those kinds of assaults from complexes in a way that they can't do when they're exhausted yeah. can, can i just add one more thing i'm sorry to bombard people with information on this but you can extend your psychology into the social environment and hardly notice you're doing it. I mean, this is the basics of projection or just ordinary social relationships. So the term psychosocial is more readily accepted by people 
as an obvious thing than psychobiology or psychophysiology. Understanding that we extend that way as well as that way yes. is a harder thing to grasp, mm. but it's real. Mm. It's actually more real than your psychosocial functioning because we are psychobiological and it's our psychobiology that interacts socially. It's not just our psychology, but because we tend to be egocentric with respect to our identity, with who we think we are, we are just the contents of our conscious mind and we're aware of social interaction. Psychosocial just takes, everybody understands that, yeah. but psychobiology is even more important. Mm. It will kill you very, very effectively if you don't look after it. Yes, yes. I was reminded as well, this might be relevant. Pauline, you were saying like um, you're going around Tesco and then you stand yes. in the queue and then that's when suddenly symptoms can start coming through because you've actually paused your own physiological ex exertion. You're sorry, James. He's fiddling with the blinds here. Please, <laughs> please carry on. It's my filmmaker. <laughs> I've, got, I've got to reflect it. I can stand there and do the reflection. Yes, you could actually, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, sorry, Jake. Well, I was, I was wondering, there was a time recently, oh, 2019 maybe, I was having like uh, anxiety and panic attacks. It would always be like mm. I'd get like symptoms. There'd be some of the symptoms that'd be listed on those things. My hands would start to tingle or my head would start to, to dissociate. Yes, I remember one, yeah, I remember one time I went out to the car for some reason. Cause I was like, I, I need to go move somewhere. I went out to, to the car. So I was busy all day. Busy, busy, busy. Yeah. Walk, walk to the car. Yeah. Busy, busy, busy. I get in the car and I sit down. I'm like, I'm going to relax now. Then I had a panic attack. Mm. So it was like, it was waiting almost for me to actually relax for about, you know, it was like five minutes trying, but I could feel it getting worse yeah. the more I tried to relax. Would that be the same yeah. thing of what you're, you're talking about? It'd be more acidosis it, it be in that case. It would be absolutely that because like I said, once you get the respiratory center resetting, you, you're being forced to hyperventilate. And so anything that reduces ventilation, such as going and sitting in the car and, and, and taking a, a few minutes to sort of have a breather um, will have an effect on, on the acid-base balance in your body and, and you'll experience the negative effects of that. Yeah. So very, very definitely. And like I say, sometimes for people, the only way to break that cycle is a, a pretty generous dose of a, of a minor tranquilizer or some other substance that will allow you to have a really good, deep quality sleep and then you kind of, you get a resetting, resetting them back in the other direction. So it's a kind of a resetting of a resetting, if yeah. you see what I mean, if that doesn't seem yeah, yeah. a contradiction but, in terms. We used to see uh, as patients, uh, medical referrals and medical centers, a lot of yoga teachers yes. and new age guru oh, types definitely. Who'd, who'd all been, yeah. oh, believed that they knew how to breathe yes. on dogmatic mm. grounds, mm. psychologically and culturally, because yes. they'd ingested these beliefs in, yes. internalized them, and then created a complex around their belief, but it was actually at odds with their health and their yes. real physiology. Yes. And they didn't want to let go of it because no. this was something that they lived their life by, mm. uh, and yet it was killing them. Yeah. Uh, and this is the, the value. And can I just, uh, just introduce, there's a spider descending from the ceiling. It's only a small one. I'll just, just dispose of it for the yes, sake of my wife's panic. <laughs> <laughs> I'll safely dispose of it. I'll just gently put it over there. If it's a little but, money spider, I'm all right. It's a little one. That's it. You mentioned the broken heart before, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Yeah. Have a look at the title of that if you can. Uh, I can see the word sabers, but that's all I can really see. Oh, hang on, wait. The, the broken heart. Con Counteraction by sabers. That's and it. Sabers yeah. And this is from the Charing Cross Hospital team. Mm hmm. And sabers is the basic regimen of sleep, arousal, breathing, rest, effort, and self esteem. But 
as you use the metaphor of uh, the broken heart, yes. Mm. Yeah. 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 All, all of this discussed in the handout, and oh. isn't it lovely? Yes. Um, we've got the letters and communications with the consultants there. We've got stuff from Ernest Rossi there. We've got the whole pathogenesis, as it's called, of the various sy uh, syndromes, the symptoms, and a very uh, basic but really practical way of beginning to get yourself out of the mess. Yes. Physiologically, yes. when you're in it, it's like a survival guide. And yeah. we did this for frontline uh, responders, first responders, and healthcare as a continuing professional development module. But it's very, very applicable. And I've added some other stuff in there as well that would be really useful. Yeah, there's the extra use as well. Is it's burnout recovery and prevention. So it's like you might be in, in the state watching this, but also at the same time, if you don't want to fall into the state, and I can tell you the state's not very nice. It's really, really, wow. not, really not very nice. If you don't want to fall into that state too, it could be relevant for everybody. And it's all in that. I mean, there is, it's packaged with all the theory, proper sort of Jung to live by style, but then it's got that, that's, that method, the Sabres method, mm. properly explicated to basically be like, yes. well, you don't have to suffer in that state anymore. Here's a step-by-step -step yep. workflow of how you can get yourself out of it. And, it, and it's worked yeah. really, really nicely for myself, basically. Yeah. But I've been tackling it to be completely you know, clear and transparent from both levels at the same time. There's been the psychology and then there's been more, more of the biology there. Yes. But, but yes. as you said, yeah, if you can't think properly, then, uh, you know, because I remember I've had, I've had panic attacks before where I would be, yeah. I'd finish the panic attack. It'd be like a series of panic attacks. I'd finish it and then I literally yeah. couldn't think. And that was almost scarier yeah. than the panic attack. Because it's like, mm. then, then you can't do anything if you can't think. I'd be trying yeah, to remember yeah, things yeah. and they just literally wouldn't yeah. come to mind. And I wasn't even tired yeah. either because it's got all that adrenaline surging. It's kind of just, I'm a, I just don't really exist anymore. I can't think at all. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, yeah. it's not a nice yeah. thing. I can vouch for it that it does actually work. And of course you've treated, well, I don't know, hundreds it, of people, it, it, thousands it, of people using mm. this method. Yes. So, oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt it has uh, neurological effects. Mm. Um, you know, when you, you think when you make effort, uh, you produce lactic acid, carbonic acid through your breathing. Um, and, the, you know, the, they have a profound effect on the body. Okay. Uh, and you know yourself, if, you, if you've overdone it a little bit and you're producing, you know, more lactic acid than maybe you normally would, you can feel fuddled. You can feel as if you can't gather yeah. your thoughts and get yeah. your head together. The, 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 yeah. the first organ if you like to be affected um when you 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 blow off too much co2 is yes. you know and become hypocatholic is yes. the brain yeah that's the first place not the last it's the first yes. but it's like the onset of a disease you don't mm. notice by the time symptoms fully arise that disease process has already been underway for a long time and it's the same with hypercapnia because it affects your brain first you're in a state of not noticing you're being changed until it gets really bad. Um, but it can lead quite quickly to hallucinations as in that paper. Yes. Uh, it can even lead to what's called epileptiform disorder, which is an epilepsy-like condition. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm reminded of, of, a, of a particular case that was a medical referral at a different medical sense than the ones we've been mentioning. Uh, but this chap had, he was on medication for epilepsy, but he had scans and everything. There was, there was no cortical damage. There was nothing that they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. Put him on the capnograph, and it was immediately obvious. Well, we got him off his medication. We retrained his breathing. We got his respiratory center reset. Uh, all the fears mm. and anxieties and psychosocial adaptations to being an epileptic had formed, obviously, a, a psychosocial 
complex. Yes, it would do. Which mm. involves other people as well. His relationship, mm. his family, mm. doctors mm. were all part of this psychosocial system yes. that were maintaining him as an epileptic. Mm. Turns out he wasn't. Mm. So once we uh, we got him sorted, he was mm. off his medication mm. and he was fine. Yeah. So that, that's another example. And then there are so many. Yes. So many. Yeah. Definitely. Well, we've been uh, we've been going for what's this? About an hour and fifteen minutes now. Perhaps it's uh, a good place to close up, unless you guys had anything else you wanted to, to add on this. Um, the only thing I'd probably add is that it's important to exclude any pathology, any underlying disease as well. Just, yes. just again, to re-emphasize the, you know, the biological side of things. So if, if you're seeing somebody in therapy, you know, you, you must know, for example, whether they've, they're chronically asthmatic, they might have chronic bronchitis, um, they might have pulmonary fibrosis, mm -hmm. they might have COPD. Uh, there are all, all sorts of, of yeah. 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 So, so it, it will be important to um, either rule out or rule in anything like that if you were taking a case history as well before you did anything else before you even put them on the capnograph so yeah, yeah. but you have to be trained in yeah. in knowing what these these um conditions are and trained to communicate with medics yes to be able to do any of that yes which is why what mm. we do as a clinical psychophysiology it's very, very important, I feel, that we have to have that in place. So it's a new paradigm, psychotherapy. New, although it's been around for 35 years, it's new in the sense that it's still groundbreaking even now. Uh, and the layer that we put on that the other psychophysiologists don't are psychodynamics in a Jungian sense. But Jungian psychodynamics, of all of them, all of the different schools, is absolutely perfect because he understood the mind-body connection yes. like none of the others did. Yeah, the best fit, isn't it? It's the best fit, but I wouldn't exclude Freud completely. No, no. Particularly his early work. Yeah. Okay, in which case, thank you both. And one last word, and, uh, one last word. No, go for it. One last word, yeah. I think this is such an important field that we should do more on this and we should explicate it more because we've really only just introduced it. Uh, and the depth to it and if, mm -hmm. if we cover complexes <laughs> properly we'll have to look at the, the psychophysiology as well yes yes yeah the, the, this, this is like a, a broad overview essentially to the, yeah. the the biopsychosocial model and indeed why it works how it works but yeah of course there's there's loads to go into loads and loads, loads to go into. Yeah. We, we, complex is, is one of the most requested topics for us to talk about so obviously yes. we can go into that in, in massive amounts of, 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 of detail a series on yes. that because it, it deserves it warrants it, it doesn't does. it does yeah. uh, it's not a small topic no. yeah it's massive actually yeah well there's you know plenty of time to to cover all of these different things so yeah but with that uh, guys watching if you'd like to pick up a copy of the of the burnout recovery and prevention manual there'll be a link down below um and of course, with that, of course, thank you for watching as always. And indeed, thank you to Steve and to Pauline for, for joining me again for another wonderful chat. It's been nice. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Blessings. 